0: Hi, everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: One of the people I write about in Bring the War Home Um, explicitly used his experience in the Vietnam War to call to other veterans to do violence in the homeland so that others could receive some of that trauma, could understand what they'd been through, could suffer as they'd suffered. That's a human call. You know, we're not meeting that need as a society. And if these groups are prepared to, it's an effective recruitment tool for them.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Dr. Kathleen Ballou, a professor at Northwestern University and author of Bring the War Home, the White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. We had Kathleen on the show a little over a year ago to talk about that book, and we've brought her back to give us an update on the current state of extremism in the U.S. Kathleen, a year ago, did you ever imagine we would be where we are today in terms of the ascendancy of the the white power movement and all this talk of civil war?
1: Certainly not. But I also never thought I would see such a wide variety of responses from institutions and communities as we begin to deal with this problem together. Um, We certainly are in a difficult place, and I think the country is in a crucible moment, but I'm hoping that our better angels will prevail.
0: We have been through crucible moments before as a country. We tend to emerge wiser and ultimately stronger, but they are incredibly painful at the time. Can you think of historical analogs? And and I hope you don't go for the big one.
1: <laughs> I think I will. Well, first we should find out what you think is the big one. But um, I think the closest historical analog to what we're seeing with extremism is the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. So that might be the one that you studied in high school, people listening and watching. Um or it may not be, but the the Klan in the 20s was enormous. We're talking about 4 million people in a much smaller country. We might think of of things like it had 10% of the entire state of Indiana was in the Klan. And it was a Klan that was sort of public-facing, It was very interested in politics, had a lot of elected officials participating. Um, And it was also structured such that people could march down the National Mall in Washington, D.C., but with their clan uniform on, but with no mask. It was publicly acceptable to be a member. And that clan uh, was certainly anti-Black and certainly anti-Semitic, but it was also incredibly opportunistic. So it was interested in figuring out what was bothering each local community and using that for its own purposes. So we saw the Klan in the 20s as being anti-Mexican on the US-Mexico border, anti-labor in the Pacific Northwest where there were big union drives um, in the timber mills. It was anti-immigrant in the Northeast where there were a lot of recent immigrants coming from Eastern and Southern Europe. And it was anti-Catholic in the state of Indiana where we saw the presence of Notre Dame University creating a sort of sense of resentment around campus. So in all of these ways, I think we're dealing with a pretty close historical parable. Um, It's important to remember that the 20s was not a great time to be a person of color in the United States, to be an immigrant in the United States, um, or even, you know, to be a woman or a child or another sort of disenfranchised population in the United States.
0: The thing about the Klan that strikes me as most instructive of this moment is that it Almost alone among uh, terror movements in America's history, had real political cover. I mean, let's not mince words. It was a it was a terror campaign, and it uh, it ran the South for the better part of a century after Reconstruction. But it had the the nearly full buy-in of a major political party, at least regionally. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there. But then I I love your application of that observation to the moment.
1: Sure, I think, um, so when we think about political buy-in in in the Klan, there are a couple of very tricky things that we want to be clear about. One is that, so the first Klan started in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War and was founded by Confederate veterans who were interested in resisting the federal government. The federal government at that time was the Republicans, the party of Lincoln. So many in the original Klan were Democrats and it was a democratic movement. Over the course of time, by the time we arrive at the mid-20th century, the parties have flipped. So what we see as a rising in the Democratic South in the post-Civil War moment is not a Democratic thing over the course of the 20th century. Um, and certainly by the time we get into the 1970s and 80s and the white power movement, which is what we're dealing with today, it is neither a Democratic nor a Republican extremist movement. It is interested in a full-out attack on America and arguably everything it stands for. It's interested in overthrowing the United States. It's interested in assassinating members of the federal government. It is not about one party or another by the time we get into the 80s. Now, that's no longer the case today where we see members of this movement have sought office and been elected in the GOP. We've seen the GOP directing opposition away from this problem. And we've even seen, you know, actions that range from a wink and a nod to circulating materials to outright um, embrace of these activists by people in the GOP. I would never want to paint with the same brush people who are voting Republicans and extremist activists, but certainly these extremists have found a home in the party.
0: I understand your your reluctance to paint with a broad brush. But one of the the things that separates this moment from other periods is that the leader of the GOP himself um, has made common cause with these extremist groups. I mean, at a presidential debate on live TV, he told the Proud Boys, designated a terror group by Canada, if I'm not mistaken, he told them to stand by. Um, yeah that I don't think has any modern parallels. You probably have to go back to the twenties to find something similar, right?
1: You really do. And we're talking about things like, um, There was a rumor that President Harding was in the Klan. I've never seen that substantiated. But certainly we have things like Woodrow Wilson screening the film Birth of a Nation, which is such a Klan film that it is still today used as a Klan recruitment video, um, screening that film in the White House when it came out in the 19-teens. So yes, that is indeed the corollary we're talking about. Now, yes, yes. President Trump called the Proud Boys up. They understood that as a call to action. I think one of the questions we have to grapple with now is that um, although he seems to have called up that movement, there are two things I think we don't know. One is whether... Trump and the Trump administration have taken actions like that out of sincere common cause or out of their own sort of use of these groups for their own purposes. As a historian, I'm very cautious about drawing conclusions about belief and intent Because even when people say they believe things, sometimes their actions speak about something else. So when we hear about things like Trump's remarks to the Proud Boys, um, last week Trump was reposting large amounts of QAnon content on his platform Truth Social, or things like Stephen Miller uh, while in the Trump administration circulating Camp of the Saints, which is a white power novel that is an anti-immigration novel. These are designed to appeal to white power activists, but I don't know whether they come from a place of genuine belief or simply from the wish to use those activists as paramilitary strike forces or as voters that can simply be, you know, uh, ginned up for their own purposes. I don't know.
0: I'm wondering how much it ultimately matters, though, if the outcome is— It's violence and the undermining of faith in our our democratic process. So maybe their alignment is cynical, uh, but they're still unleashing incredibly destructive forces.
1: Absolutely. And this brings me to the second thing we don't know, which is it may be that Trump is right now in command of some of this surge. I mean, it certainly was the case after that debate that the Proud Boys saw themselves as working um, in common cause with Trump. But we would be very mistaken to jump to the conclusion that Trump is commanding this army of people. Um, and it is a guerrilla army of people stretching across the country and even beyond. I don't think anybody's in command. I don't think Trump or anyone else has the power to call them off. So it's one thing to sort of unleash the momentum. Being in control of it is something else. And we've never seen that in in the history of these groups.
0: You have your finger on the the pulse of these groups probably better than than anyone else I I talk to. What is their feeling about the moment we're in right now? I mean, from the outside looking in, I think a lot of people would see the prosecutions after January sixth. Um, you know, the the momentum of the FBI to investigate uh, other domestic terrorist acts. I mean, they got two of the people who targeted. Governor Whitmer. Within the movement, though, I have to believe that they still feel a sense of purpose and momentum and the historical tide in their favor.
1: Oh, certainly. I don't think that prosecutions here and there have ever derailed momentum for this kind of activism. I think what it does is create the sense that they're under attack, which is one of the things that fuels this kind of ideology and radicalization. Um, The idea of being under attack, that, that people are out to get them, that there is a apocalyptic project of racial extinction underway and that there's a conspiracy trying to make that happen. That's the fuel of this whole thing. I think that where we are now, and I should say, I'm a historian. I don't have an archive for the present day movement because we don't have one yet. It'll be 10 or 20 or 30 years before we really can see the wide view of what's happening. But I think the earlier history is instructive here because we know a lot about how this works, how it has worked over time, and how people's actions have matched their rhetoric. In other words, not just what they say, but what they actually do to follow up that, those slogans and ideas. And I think that what I would expect to find right now is in the period that I studied, which is from 1979 to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, the reason that these activists got so violent and turned to war on the government was that they thought the door to politics was completely closed. They talked about, you know, the time for the ballot has passed. Now is the time for the bullet. They thought that they could never achieve what they wanted through the political process. I think that the Trump administration, the Trump moment, Trump himself, however we'd like to slice it, that door has been opened. So my guess is that what we're seeing is some tension in this you know, quite broad and diverse in every way but race group of activists about whether they're going to stay the course towards guerrilla warfare or whether they would like to now divert their attention towards political mechanisms. These are both a threat to the United States. One of them, the the guerrilla warfare threat, leads us towards mass casualty actions, radicalization, cell-style terrorism, um, infrastructure attacks, uh, targeted assassination of enemies, this whole set of things that we're quite familiar with. The other way leads us towards a bunch of the other things we've been seeing in the news, like Proud Boys jockeying to get into control positions in the GOP process in Florida, um, like attacks on school curricula and attempts to flood local school boards with people, um, like people in the Oath Keepers holding office. These kind of moves towards legitimate political operation that we're seeing finding a home in the GOP. And these are a threat for a whole different reason, because these are the things that threaten our capacity to hold free elections, our ability to remain a democratic country. And I mean, you know, capital D democracy, not the democratic party, but whether we want to be ruled by the people or whether we want to be ruled by an authoritarian subgroup of largely white right fringe actors. Um, these are the two sort of outcomes that I think the movement might be able to see right now, and both of them are a threat.
0: That first outcome you describe is is terrifying, the, the threats to life and property. But our democracy has weathered those kinds of threats before. Um, if you had to evaluate the severity of one versus the other, I, I would guess that the second one is existential. I mean, it threatens Our conception of what America is. And and I don't know if we've ever been tested in in that way before.
1: I don't think so. I think to find cognates and historical corollaries for that example, we're really looking to other nations where where there have been successful coups, where right-wing groups like this have become either de facto or legal strike forces and death squads for authoritarian regimes. Um, there's a whole host of examples of this. Um, I find all of them starkly un-American and at odds with all of the things that we think of when we think of sort of the the nature of, of our country's project.
0: How important are individuals to this movement? There was a Senate candidate on the Republican side in Pennsylvania who made this, this keen observation that MAGA existed before Trump and MAGA will long outlive him and basically cast him as an avatar for a much more powerful, uh, enduring movement. And it begs the question, are individual leaders that instrumental in, in guiding this thing, or does it have a life beyond the characters uh, who, are, who are pushing it along right now?
1: I think individual leaders can be incredibly powerful in sort of creating space for the legitimacy or perceived legitimacy of this movement. And if people are listening on the podcast, I'm using big air quotes around legitimacy. (laughs) I think that, you know, Trump really moved the window on what we, uh, air quotes again, but what we as a nation think of as acceptable discourse to include groups like this, um, I think they're probably as surprised as anybody to find themselves in the room. But, you know, once they're in the room, they don't need someone to let them in again. And I think that the way that, you know, the way that the Trump administration opened the floodgates to this kind of thing coming into our mainstream politics is going to be one of the lasting legacies of the Trump years, whether or not he remains a a public figure in other ways.
0: Can you talk about some of those individuals carrying the torch now. And I hope you'll focus on the veterans among them because that's a a core piece of your, your thesis as well.
1: Yes. So part of what I talk about in Bring the War Home is how we can look at the legacies of American warfare in fueling the activity of these groups. And by that, I mean not that all veterans are predisposed or anything like that, but that veterans have been targeted for recruitment by these groups both because of the tactical expertise that they can bring that that can dramatically escalate the violent capacity of extremism and because all of us across american society are more available for violent action after warfare. Um, So if you look at the rises and falls of Klan membership, it correlates more closely with the aftermath of warfare than it does with poverty or um, waves of immigration or civil rights gains or populism or any number of explanations that have sort of been commonly bantered about as why people might join a group like the Klan. The thing that pushes violent action um, is the aftermath of war. And we're now living through this incredibly pro Prolonged aftermath of warfare, um, where, you know, I taught a class on 9 11 last year because my undergraduates don't remember. Um, they were tiny children or babies or not even born yet um, for 9 11. We were at war basically their whole lives. And we've fought that war largely out of view and out of conversation of much of our society until, well, anyhow, it's come in and out of view. But veterans have been targeted for recruitment by groups like Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. They appear in large numbers in things like the arrest lists for January 6th, the charging documents for January 6th. And we know that veterans expand the violent capacity of these groups. So it's not clear to me where we are in sort of the membership peak cycle I don't know what that long warfare model does to those ebbs and flows. I don't know if we're looking at sort of like a longer, steady peak, um, if it's going to be a spike in retreat or an escalating line. I don't know. But certainly we're living through one of these peaks now, um, and that should inform our public response.
0: That, I think, was the most striking finding uh, of the research that you wrote about in Bring the War Home. And you distilled it for me in a in an earlier conversation when you said, uh, what we don't know is what happens after a 20-year war. I mean, yeah. the peaks in KKK membership that you've been able to map were after, relatively speaking, very brief wars, World War One and World right. War Two. But when a country's been at war over the span of literally two generations now, I mean, I, I know people – uh, who have had two generations of their family in Afghanistan or Iraq. Yeah. What does that do to the tolerance of violence and the proclivity towards violence of a society?
1: Absolutely. And I mean, there's there's a number of other ways that the war on terror has been different than something like Vietnam. Um, so we could think of the ways that military service has become a incredibly segregated part of our society. And I mean that not only literally in the sense that more and more servicemen and women live on posts and bases where their primary social webs are also servicemen and women, but that also we have largely diverted the problems of fighting the war from our public attention. Before the fall of Afghanistan, when we look at the campaign stops um, and the debates, the wars, ongoing wars, hardly even featured. Um, We don't really see the big signs like coffins coming home. We don't do our grieving together as a nation. All of that work has to go somewhere. And these groups are incredibly receptive to those stories, to um, thinking about the wrongness of warfare. And one of the people I write about in Bring the War Home um, explicitly used his experience in the Vietnam War to call to other veterans to do violence in the homeland so that others could receive some of that trauma, could understand what they'd been through, could could suffer as they'd suffered. That's a human call. you know. We We're not meeting that need as a society. And if these groups are prepared to, it's an effective recruitment tool for them.
0: This is something... I hear all the time in my conversations with fellow vets. I'm wondering if there is research yet to bear it out. Though, does the nature of our retreat from Afghanistan, the the ignominious end to our occupation there, um, does that uh, fuel this trend, this um, diversion of disenchanted vets into extremist groups, like you saw after the Vietnam War, which ended similarly?
1: You know, it's hard to know that now, but I can't imagine it wouldn't I mean I think that if you're watching the footage of the fall of Kabul and not thinking about Saigon it's either because you it has to be just that you don't know you know I mean like the helicopters the the civilians trying to flee the way that the Americans were so frustrated by their inability to keep safe the people who had been there on the ground informants and contacts um the rapid exit. I mean, to me, all of these things were incredibly evocative of our exit from Saigon. And we know that these are still live wires for people in the white power movement, even for people who didn't serve and people who weren't there for this. I mean, um, uh, the example I always think of is Dylan Roof, the Charleston shooter, posing with flag patches from Rhodesia, Zimbabwe. I mean, he wasn't even alive when there was a country called Rhodesia. But that has remained a a live symbol of ideology and of the history of this movement. So Vietnam is alive in that same way. Um, another example is the Proud Boys going around wearing Pinochet was right t-shirts talking about the Southern Cone. All of that stuff from the seventies, we might think of it as settled, but it's still very much a live wire in our politics. Hello, this is Gary Shahot, welcoming you to check out the French history podcast. and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French history podcast today.
0: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. I really appreciate your observations about the isolation of military communities and the, the segregation of, of veterans as a warrior class um, because we had Sebastian Younger on uh, not too long ago who made the observation uh, uh, about what it takes to truly reintegrate. And he invoked the experience of Native American tribes who had a very, very different approach to welcoming the warrior home. Are you familiar at all with, uh, with his work? It's not Research it's more anecdotal, but it's really powerful.
1: Only a bit, but you know the thing that strikes me is that um, the sort of symbolic role of a lot of the white power activism after the Vietnam War I think mattered to a lot of people. So I, you know, the White Patriot Party began as a Klan group in North Carolina and then um, tried to expand a little bit more by by saying White Patriot Party rather than having Klan in the title, but they outfitted their members in camo fatigues and did big marches in paramilitary formation. And one of the things that they thought was really important was allowing people to wear their military decorations. And they thought it was really important that all of those had to be duly earned decorations, which is, you know, um, there were a lot of people after the Vietnam War going around just playing dress up, but that was not what they were doing. They were trying to do something much more Substantive about recognizing the service that had happened. Now, I don't think there's anything noble about what the White Patriot Party was doing, but it does sort of show that there is this need for that reintegration that they were able to sort of cannibalize for their own nefarious purposes. And it seems to me that, you know, all of us as a society have to think about the long consequences of warfare. Both broadly, but also within the people who are coming home, who have done that work for the country,
0: there are a number of GOP politicians with military backgrounds who have masterfully reimagined their their service or or channeled that angst and in some cases rage that you're talking about uh, coming from fellow veterans to propel their own political uh, careers. I mean, this is very personal for me, because I see them as an even greater political threat than someone like Trump. But have you observed that same phenomenon from people like Doug Mastriano or J.D. Vance or even Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, dressing up as soldier to lead their their new army sure. um, for political gain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I think that that kind of thing has been a incredibly effective political strategy since the 1980s. And part of that lives in how we remember and how we tell the story about the Vietnam War, right? We have a story about the conflict as well as the conflict. Um, And in many cases, I think that our story of that war is much more powerful and encompassing than what happened on the ground. Um, And for some people, you know, rings true. We could think about the Tim O'Brien idea of story truth here about trying to like get at the thing that happened rather than the specifics, And actually, um, that's something that appears in all kinds of trauma stories, not just in warfare, but other kinds of trauma as well. One of the interesting and surprising things that I think comes out of the history of the Army and other parts of DOD after Vietnam um, is that the military— when it wants to, has been incredibly good at infrastructure and taking care of its own people. Um, So there's recent work by David Kieran about how if you sort of adjust for exposure, which is, of course, much higher among service members, the military is much better at mental health care than our country as a whole. Um, The military has been incredibly good at things like benefits, like post and base exchanges, like childcare, like housing supplement, and sort of um, the things we might think of as like a welfare safety net for its people. I think a lot about what you know, how incredibly powerful the military could be at dealing with some of these problems at the level of infrastructure. If if the military were interested in doing, you know, some civics education, perhaps people would not be so confused and frustrated about our electoral process. Um, I think the military could do some history education. I think the military could do much more in the way of connecting people together after service. Um, we could think about integration into community after homecoming in a totally different way, um, and I think the reason we don't have these conversations is precisely because of that social segregation that we have um, seen become so entrenched over the last, you know, short term of our history.
0: I don't uh, hold out a lot of hope that the DoD is going to pick up that ball and run with it. It just doesn't. Care for for those who have left the military as its mandate. Assuming you you agree, uh, who else can can carry that? Uh, is, is it up to the VA? Are there uh, civic organizations that can step into the gap? How do we address this gaping hole in the reintegration of veterans?
1: Well, I got to say that um, the DOD can be moved by veterans asking for things and by veterans organizing. I think that over time, when we've seen um, the Army particularly decide to provide more benefits, it's partly because people, and here it's not just um, service members, but also families, like, the wives organizing and saying like, we need to be able to shop, we need to be able to get childcare has made a real difference. So I think that within military communities, there's a huge capacity for this kind of organizing work. I also think that the DOD is starting to take some steps towards this. So the policy changes that came out last December around trying to do more information or more teaching about misinformation that's circulating online, about conspiracy theory, about things like this, I think is a step in the right direction. And we could imagine that we could do quite a bit more. But I mean, I always hate to say that the VA should do anything because it seems that they have their hands so full at all times. But it seems that this, and I'm talking now about not only the problem of reintegration of veterans, but the problem of white power activism more broadly and the the many threats it poses to our society. And maybe we could think of you know the special threat that it poses to veterans in terms of lives getting co-opted into this in ways that people can't control. Always, it seems that this is a big social problem. I I don't want it only to rest in the hands of the DOD or the VA or veterans communities because this is all of our problem. As somebody who is in a, a you know let's see I wouldn't say social circle but like I I don't get students who are on their way to the armed forces. I don't get much integration in my own life with veteran communities. And um, I'm not prepared to say I don't have a responsibility for them. I think that this is a problem of all of our society. And the aftermath of warfare should be part of how we think about the cost of war.
0: Do you think President Biden was right to call out the anti-democratic Uh, tendencies and the outright extremism of a significant fraction of, uh, of the Republican party.
1: I think so. I think that that, um, well, let me say this. I'm not a policymaker. I'm not a politician. Um, and of course we'll have to see how that all goes. I think that what is really, really important is to figure out how to say, there is a threat to our democracy. This is a anti-American form of political participation. This is anti-American violence because I think reasonable people, there is a reasonable center that cares about that apart from politics, but we've become so... Incredibly polarized. That even being able to say that to anyone, being able to say anything to any say anything to anybody on the other side, um, has become incredibly loaded. So I, it's it's I don't know. We're we're living through some very precarious times in terms of the stakes of any one of these pieces of speaking out.
0: Do you ever worry that just doing your job, finding the truth and sharing it, makes some of the the most horrific outcomes more likely? Do you know what I mean? Like giving sure. voice to these fears might actually fuel them?
1: I think that's a reasonable concern. I, I, I have had this ethical question at one way or another throughout my research. So I started looking at these groups in 2005 Um, And the concern back then was sort of like, well, if we talk about them, are we giving them notoriety? Are we creating a capacity for copycat attacks? Um, Is it likely that like simply by talking about it, there will be more? I have always felt that on balance, the ethics say that we should speak about it. We've tried ignoring it. And what happened was a long death toll that was primarily focused on communities of color, on people who could not fight back, who could not face this down on their own. We have largely played directly into the hands of this movement by letting it go unopposed. I think that the ethical call is on the side of confrontation and and fighting for what we think our country should be. Um, You know, I think, I believe that There should be fair elections that reflect the people who live here and that that is what our nation is. I believe that that was a radical promise um, enmeshed in life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I'm somebody who believes that that promise has been expanding over time, not through magnanimity, but through people fighting for their own inclusion. I mean, that promise when it was written wasn't for me, but I want to fight to make it include me and I want to fight to make it include all of us.
0: I think you're getting at something I... I have thought a lot about since my time in uniform, and we've done a couple episodes on, which are are the very different kinds of patriotism that keep this country going. There was my very naive version in which I joined the military because I was grateful for all I had been given. And then There was the patriotism of my, you know, black co-pilot who joined because he wanted to fight for the country he deserved and his family deserved uh, and all the promises that that hadn't been kept. Um, And when you talk about that radical promise, um, it has not been delivered uh, equally, but but still needs to be fought for by everyone.
1: I think so. (laughs) It's a hard road. I think history has a lot of examples of people fighting that fight, and I think there's a lot there to teach us.
0: I appreciate your commitment to confronting hard truths, uh, even <laughs> at the expense of being criticized for maybe lending them notoriety. But in that same spirit, I wanted to ask you about the American Redoubt. Uh, this is you know, coming up more and more these days. This uh, this supposed enclave um, started in Idaho uh, that, you know, some of the extremists now uh, identify as the the locus of their civil war preparations?
1: Well, we have had um, such communities before, um, many of them in Idaho. I think that that is some evidence that the old strategies are still in play. The idea that They might be looking at an incremental conflict where they seize a white homeland and then expand into an ethno-state and then into a nation. Um, And then, you know, the Turner Diaries, which is a dystopian novel that has been the playbook for a lot of these groups, um, says that the next step after that is genocide and the provision of an all-white world. Um, That is certainly the most violent and extreme distillation of the idea. But I think, you know, the move to seize a white homeland, um, whether it is a small compound or something bigger, has been a point of return over and over and over again in the writings of this movement. So that's sort of of keeping with the old strategies. Last
0: question, and I know this isn't a focus of, of your research, but I'd be really interested in your in your answer uh, about the really twisted notions of masculinity that, that power this movement, that draw people in. I mean, you even have leading intellectuals on the right talking about the the crisis of masculinity and, and how the answer is, uh, you know, is for groups like the <laughs> Proud Boys and, and Oath Keepers to be real men, again, in air quotes. Um, where does that come from? Do you, do you think that is real fodder for this movement or is it just a laughable sideshow?
1: I don't think any of it is a laughable sideshow because I think all of it has very unlaughable um, outcomes. But let me think of, I, I think that we see these resurgent calls for hyper-masculinity at historical moments when people are, when men, usually white men, are feeling like they are not getting their due because of gains by other populations. So for instance, we see, um, that kind of language come up opposing the, the feminist movement in seventies and eighties. Um, we see it come up in very loud volume in the early 1990s during the culture wars. And we see it again today. I mean, there's, um, as we have this big cultural conversation about how we want to think about gender and how we want to think about um, bodies and reproductive rights, I think it makes sense to me that one of the sort of reactions to that discussion is to reassert masculinity. Not for nothing, but there has been a steady sort of output of writings and ideology by white power women who want to reclaim femininity for the same reason. So, you know, we can think about trad homemaking channels and like the trad housewife thing. Um, Just came across my TikTok again, which is Um, here comes the new thing, same as the old thing. But the idea that women need to take on this role in order to be totally fulfilled um, is also part of this ideology. And not for nothing, all of this at bottom is about white reproduction. So the idea that the white race is under siege by outside forces, that it's going to disappear because of intermixing and assaults, And the only way to face all of this down is to have a whole bunch of white babies is sort of the engine that fuels anti-immigration, anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-integration. What am I missing? Um, All of this is sort of the same engine of ideology. So those gender roles are really important for that project of white reproduction, which makes them sort of easy to come back to in times when they're culturally valuable.
0: When you talk about the resurgence of these anxieties as a response to the growing power of what are seen as, as competitive groups. I just want to clarify, we're not really talking about the group with the grievance in this case, losing rights or losing economic opportunities, or in any way having its overall sense of opportunity uh, diminished. We're talking about a relative thing, the, the yeah. conflict- is about appearances.
1: I think we're talking about a feeling, a feeling of having lost out on what someone was entitled to. So, you know, the caricature of this online is sort of like the incel activist who is angry because he is not entitled to sex with a certain number of women or something. Um, Or um, someone who loses their job and blames it on a person of color and says, therefore, I want no people of color in my town because all of these jobs are supposed to be mine or something like this. Um this is attached to real feelings. And so it is a real phenomenon, but this is not, you know, there's somebody was showing me a shirt that was like, um, more rights for, for others doesn't mean less rights for you. It's not pie. Um, and I think it's a good way to think about it, right? Like, it's not like we don't have a limited pool of stuff in that way. Um, in any kind of real sense, this is a sense of aggrievement. What I want to clarify, too, is like it doesn't make it any less real. Um, It is real to the people who are acting from that place. Um, And I suppose it's real in certain ways, right? So they think about things like the demographic change of the country, the moment when the country will no longer be majority white and what that will mean for them. That's not an important benchmark if you care about multiculturalism or if you think about America as like a melting pot, but it is an important benchmark if you believe that at the time when you are minority white, then that is the racial apocalypse. So it's all about worldview and where things fit together.
0: With all of this uh, catastrophizing and with the um, what seems like an all-out assault on, on fundamental rights, a radicalized Supreme Court, are there still things looking to the future that give you hope?
1: Absolutely. And I think it's good not to be down in the ditch when we're confronting this. But, um, you know, the fact that we can have this conversation about the threat of these groups to veterans and the fact that there are veterans joining these groups, although not in a statistically significant way, but in an instrumental way, represents a huge step forward in the way that we are publicly thinking about this conversation. Um, Things like the DOD saying they're going to get a headcount about how big the problem is within the armed forces. Um, You know, we don't have the count yet that I've seen, but maybe we're gonna have one, right? These are all huge steps forward. We're late to this project, but we are beginning to take steps. So I think the big question is whether we can sort of gather the public pressure and work needed to push it along fast enough to really face down the problem. But I really think that there are so many people who care about that radical promise, who care about the idea of we're going to rule ourselves through elections, who care about the idea of protecting the constitution. I think that there are enough people that if we get it together we can solve the problem. I I really believe, I hope.
0: I do too. Um, and, and thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Kathleen, it's been great having you on.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Thanks again to Kathleen for joining me. If you haven't already, make sure to check out her book, Bring the War Home, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars and Sean Rule Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen Executive Producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
1: Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history,
0: pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. This podcast
1: was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.